0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the most important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have shaped where we are today. In this episode, we feature the lecture, The Culture of Disenchantment, Technology, Art, Heidegger. It's the sixth in our series, Culture Wars, Then and Now. This episode picks up on the story of the culture wars in the post-war period, amidst tensions between mass culture and high art, between building on tradition and the determination to discover the new, between the clash of modernism and postmodernism. It looks at the role of the artist, the authority of high culture and the elevation of the everyday. The lecturer is Angus Kennedy, convener of the academy and the author of Being Cultured in Defence of Discrimination. Angus is also the co-editor of a new book, From Self to Selfie, a critique of contemporary alienation.
1: I'm going to try and uh, go through some thoughts about what we've been uh, discussing yesterday to kind of bridge back to that discussion. And then I really wanted to focus on the sort of culture industry discussion in the post-war period, but I'm going to look at high culture in particular. But I think we might start with some definitional, um, definitional excursion, if you like, into the meaning of culture then look at some of the problems of the loss of uh, touch with tradition, loss of cultural authority, and then try and bring it up uh, to the modern day uh, and look at some examples of discussions about culture um, in the form of classical classical music, literature uh, and the arts, insofar as we'll have time to to do that. Uh, We've noted, I think, yesterday that the culture wars are more than the contemporary preoccupation with identity. Uh, and that they're more than the countercultural movements of the 1960s. The erosion of the authority of Western cultural values was very much accelerated by the First World War, as Frank was saying yesterday, and as he's detailed in his book on the First World War, and maybe found its clearest articulation in Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West, the first volume of which was published uh, in 1918. Maybe Spengler's core idea was that Culture is a matter of becoming, um, which then inevitably in a sort of natural process turns into being. Uh, being is something static, which will which will die, which he calls civilization. Uh, it's when culture sort of freezes, gets set in its ways, uh, and starts to become old. But Spengler was not the first cultural pessimist, and as Tim was taking us through it yesterday, the end of the 19th century, saw a real detachment of the cultural elites from uh, those, the elites of business and politics. And this weakening of authority is a long-running process that maybe starts uh, with the Reformation and the early beginnings of the process of the secularization of society, maybe when we start becoming aware of tradition as tradition and when art stops being sacred. Um, The things start to be put to question. Hegel talks about the way in which uh, the ethical life, the ethical order, is ethical behavior grounded in custom and tradition and developed through habit and imitation in accordance with the objective laws of uh, the community. Uh, That's something that very becomes the object of self-conscious reflection from the enlightenment onwards. And we can understand people like Matthew Arnold, Arnold railing against the barbarism, uh, he calls it, of the aristocracy and the philistinism of the middle classes. While the enlightenment had been suffused by classical culture and the beginning of the 19th century had been swept by a mania for all things Greek, uh, by 1900, the classics of the foundation of education had been under under attack for at least two generations. Nietzsche himself was a classical scholar and philologist of note, but it becomes the archetype of 19th century pessimism. Decrying culture as a lie, masking the naked power of uh, the elites, the oligarchy, and morality is just a sham. You know, a real sort of attack uh, on, on tradition, on the values of his civilization. Tim rightly compared it to Heidegger's uh, desire to philosophize with a hammer. Uh, the destruction uh, of his attack on metaphysics, uh, but it also uh, takes a form in romantic rebellion uh, of 19th century artists who want to uh, do anything to show how different uh, and original they are, how much no, they're no longer conforming to the values of society. And already at the beginning of that century, we can say, we can read in Hegel's aesthetics that arts uh, pretty much, finished. Hegel says, art no longer counts for us as the highest manner in which tr- truth obtains existence for itself. In its highest determination, vocation, and purpose, art is and remains for us a thing of the past. What well, this r- long-running culture war really is, I think, is a weakening and a rejection of the authority of traditional cultural judgment. Without any cultural line being held, there's more or less Uh, a cultural free-for-all going on now. Uh, And as these cultural wars have deepened, we end up with a rejection of the idea of cultural judgment in any form, not just its traditional. Now, culture is a very broad term, of course. Um, I'm going to try and concentrate, as I said, on culture in the sense of works of art, of high culture, because I think it's there you can probably see the effect of the erosion of cultural judgment most clearly. And the arts maybe sometimes seem to prefigure and predict uh, what's going to happen in the future. But what is, what is culture? <clears throat> well, at the simplest level, it's not nature. Nature just is. Culture is an improvement on what is, or a taking care of what is, attending to it, and nurturing of it. Culture is a Roman word, it comes from the Latin verb colere, which means to cultivate, agriculture. Uh, It means to look after fields and vegetable gardens uh, in which you work under the Italian sun to produce the necessities of life uh, from nature. Uh, So by extension, the verb colleri starts to mean, uh, to become to mean where you live, uh, the land in which you inhabit, from which you take what you need to live. Uh, It's where you dwell. Uh, Colleri is to persist in a place, to stay somewhere Uh, that you've cultivated and thereby made fit for you to live in. Culture is about cultivating and making a world and also being in the world. It's got a subjective, active sense and also a passive sense. It's about becoming and being. It's also about giving thanks for all of this, for the kind of miracles of of nature. Uh, And one gives thanks by making sacrifices in the form of cult uh, to the gods and you can be thankful as well for after all that hard work in the fields having a bit of free time at the end of the day or at least in the good years when the harvest uh, is plentiful and there's a bit of an abundance of olives or whatever it is you live on in <clears throat> ancient Italy um, in that free time you can turn your attention to self-cultivation. Uh, you can look after your body but maybe very quickly start to care for your soul and your spirit, uh, you can become self-cultivating. And at that point, uh, culture tends to take on, inevitably takes on something of a moral dimension. Uh, You ask yourself the question, what sort of person do I want to make of myself? And what sort of a person should I be for others? How should I appear to others? How should I be regarded by them uh, as an object of their judgment? Culture, essentially, then, is not natural. We have nature on the one hand, what is given, and culture on the other hand, what we make. In the man-made world, we have both use objects and works of art, and both of these are durable. I'm drawing here from um, an important essay uh, by Hannah Arendt called The Crisis in Culture, but I'll try and give a kind of précis of her argument. Um, she argues that, there are various categories of things that we make. So there are things that we make that we use up uh, bread, clothes, mills, mills and boons, novels, uh, consumer goods. Then there are things that we make that we use to make other things, equipment, hammers, machine tools, now they have durability. Good hammers are not used up in the hammering of one nail. And then there are things that we make that are not to be used up consumed, or nor in fact to be used at all, but things that are made to last. Temples, poems, paintings, things that aspire to the condition of immortality. And the things that last the longest are those that we can be pretty confident uh, are, are good. So it's a safe bet often to reckon that the Iliad and the Odyssey are good works of art because many generations of critics have kept them on the list. And that cultural tradition is a sort of accretion and accumulation and aggregation of critical traditional judgments that have persisted through time. Just for completeness, there's a sort of fourth category of things, uh, which is actions and words and events, uh, which don't last at all. Uh, They disappear as soon as they happen, except insofar as they're preserved in our memories and our histories. Now these cultural products make up the world uh, in which we which we live and artworks uh, are superior to uh, hammers because they last longer. It makes them the worldliest of all things, not made really for us, uh, but for the world and deliberately removed from the processes of consumption and usage and isolated away from the sphere of human life necessities. Arendt says, an earthly home becomes a world in the proper sense of the word, only when the totality of fabricated things is so organized that it can resist the consuming life process of the people dwelling in it and thus outlast them. It's only when survival at the biological level is assured that we can speak of culture, when things can exist free of all functional requirements, then we can start to speak of works of art. Therefore, all discussion of culture sort of has to start with art because works of art are the only things that are made solely for the purpose of appearance. And appearance is what we judge in terms of beauty. quick, in terms of how judgment works, kind of get dragged into this by trying to define culture, judgment works by being able to put a distance between ourselves and the object of our judgment. And we get that distance by sort of forgetting ourselves, by being disinterested. Um, when we're freed from that necessity of being really involved in something, you can step back uh, and judge something by its appearance. <clears throat> okay. you with me so far. Culture, uh, then this world we've created in which we live, comes in two forms, uh, are two kind of conceptions of culture, common culture and high or elite culture. Now, common culture is a matter of the traditions that go to make up a way of life, the customs, the language, the history, rituals, prejudices and beliefs of a people. It's what makes uh, a people, a nation, what it is, it's its essence. It's how it defines itself as itself. It's what unites the members of society uh, by linking them to its past and its future. It tells us what matters and tells us how to feel, what to say, what to do in certain situations. As the common culture has kind of weakened through history as a way of being together, uh, so uh, has the search for identity taken on more and more of an uh, existential importance. High culture. Uh, like common culture has its basis in in religion in providing an ethical uh, vision for human beings seen as objects of judgment Uh, but high culture on the other hand is not possessed by all members of a community but only by those who have taken the effort uh, to cultivate themselves and the ability, as I said at the beginning the ability to make that effort depends on having the ability, the leisure, the money the free time in order to do so really depends on freedom. Leisure time is the time in which we are free from all cares and activities necessitated by the life process and therefore free for the world and its culture. This is the view of culture as being something that will reward those who work at it, a subject who is free to appreciate the beautiful object. All right, so that's the history of aesthetics. Um, <laughs> and definition of culture in 20 minutes. Um, I'm gonna leap all the way back uh, to Homer, uh, just because Homer is better company on uh, Sunday morning than the other H, um, really, though they're both good to read. Um, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, standing right at the beginning of the Western cultural tradition, uh, can be read themselves as commenting on what culture actually is. Uh, The most frequent activity Uh, in both epics is is feasting. Certainly in the Odyssey, uh, there's maybe slightly more fighting than feasting in the Iliad, but nevertheless, eating and drinking is a very integral part of both uh, these epic poems. Uh, In book 14 of the Odyssey, returning to his homeland, Ithaca, uh, Odysseus goes to the house of his swineherd, Eumaeus, who gives him the hospitality which is due to all strangers and beggars. He's disguised as a... As a beggar, or a stranger—I can't remember. As a, a Cretan, I think. Um, he goes to the Eumaeus goes to the pigsty, chooses two young hogs, and has them brought out and slaughtered. Then singed and sliced and spitted. When they were roasted, he came and put them before Odysseus, smoking hot with the spit still through them, and sprinkled white barley groats on top. Lastly, he mixed sweet wine in an ivywood bowl, sat down, facing his guest, and bade him set two. Odysseus eats ravenously until he's full and then invents some kind of story about his return from Troy pretending to be this Cretan and reflects on the importance of meat and wine and how it's their abundance that allows for storytelling to happen. If only we two had food and sweet wine enough to linger on here inside this cottage and feast undisturbed while other men went about their tasks, then I might well enough spend a 12 month recounting the sorrows of my spirit and still not come to an end of them all the sorrows that I have toiled through because the gods willed it so. But it's only five pages later, actually, that Eumaeus declares it's time for another meal and calls to his fellow swineherds, bring me the best hog you have. I mean to slaughter it for this guest from distant parts. We ourselves shall be gainers too after suffering toil and trouble so long for the sake of these white-tusked hogs, while others devour scot-free the creatures that we have labored over. That's the suitors who are eating Odysseus out of house and home. So saying, he turned to splitting firewood with ruthless, ruthless bronze, while the others brought in a fat five-year hog and held it by the hearth. The swineherd did not forget the deathless ones, for he was a right-minded man. To begin the sacrifice, he plucked hairs from the beast's head, and as he threw them into the fire, he besought the gods, one and all, that sage Odysseus might return to his own home. Then he raised himself to his full height and with a billet of oak left unsplit, he struck the hog and it fell stunned. They cut the throat and singed the carcass and quickly divided it. Eumaeus took strips from all the limbs, covered the thigh bones with rich fat and with the strips, then sprinkled them with barley meal. It's a bit of a sort of ritual repetition thing that goes on here. Uh, the barley meal threw them into the fire then his men cut up the rest spitted the pieces roasted them carefully took them all off again then heaped them on serving dishes the swineherd stood up to portion them out justly and fairly as was his way he divided the whole into seven portions assigning one with the due prayer to the nymphs and to hermes child of Maia, and giving the rest to the diners one by one he honored Odysseus with the whole length of chine from the hog and with this tribute he cheered his master's heart Feasts in uh, epic poetry are actually the settings for the performance of epic poetry. Uh, it's you, know, you celebrate the fact that you've got enough to eat by making stories, telling, recounting stories in that setting. Um, things that are rehearsed over many centuries, and they give a real historical continuity. They celebrate the values of equal sharing, mutual obligation, individual esteem within the collective. Odysseus gets a little bit more hog. Uh, potential for, but also the potential for universal inclusion. Uh, The just sacrifice is given. People do the right things because they are right-minded people uh, still living in an enchanted world where tradition isn't tradition, it's just what you do. Well, that was then, if you like. Um, The crisis in culture in Hannah Arendt's essay uh, is that she sees a real sort of tragedy is that with the emergence of uh, masses of people into leisure time uh, that they'd never had before, uh, as the productive forces of society are kind of raised to that level, people have more free time. The tragedy she sees is that happens almost at exactly the same moment that the cultural elites give up uh, on the cultural tradition of the West and say, look, there's nothing here. Uh, It's all rubbish. Uh, You might as well be happy with films and Hollywood and mass culture. That'll be fine. There's nothing really else to do. None of of this stuff that we've created through the past is worth hanging on to. Uh, The things of the moment are more important. Uh, She says, it's the tragedy of mass man that he comes of age as cultural judgment leaves the stage, leaving him bereft of standards by which to judge, leaving him alone, able only to consume, egocentric and alienated. Now, there's this whole discussion uh, post-war about how the culture industry has taken over uh, in terms of Adorno and Horkheimer, uh, but also in terms of Arendt, Raymond Williams, and Heidegger. Lots of people make the point that uh, everything is being used up in the dialectic of Enlightenment, Uh, which is Adorno and Horkheimer's book, but also in Adorno's The Culture Industry, Uh, the argument is made that instrumental rationality, the absolute power of capitalism, uh, has commodified art, turned all ends into means. Films, radios, and magazines now make a system which is uniform as a whole and in every part, even the aesthetic activities of political opposites, are one in their enthusiastic obedience to the rhythm of the iron system there's no way out of this uh, totalizing view of consumer culture mass culture everywhere there are the gleaming towers signifying the ingenious planning of international concerns artistic rebellion and individual imagination have been crushed the worker is more robot than man bourgeois freedom nothing but a myth bought with the exclusion of the lower classes Adorno uh, and Horkheimer argue that the culture industry is the de-artification or commodification of art by capitalism. It's an inauthentic and formulaic regurgitation of reality that deceives its audiences. The liquidation of tragedy confirms the abolition of the individual. And I like this one, the bourgeois is already virtually a Nazi. Now, I do kind of see this view that all this... Process uh, development, this long uh, tradition of culturing the world has brought us to uh, a point that we've entrapped ourselves, inframed ourselves, Heidegger would, would say, uh, that we've turned ourselves into things, that we can only understand ourselves as things among things, that we pay for our increased power over the natural world with an alienation uh, from. Uh, which is the basis on which we exercise our power. The power principle of the alienated bourgeois leads, as Safransky argues in his biography of Heidegger, to production line murder in the Holocaust. The bourgeois is already virtually a Nazi. Men are leveled off and then finished off uh, for Adorno and Horkheimer, but Heidegger makes a similar argument. Agriculture is now a motorized food industry, essentially the same as the manufacture of corpses and gas chambers. Which brings us to Heidegger. What are we doing for time? <clears throat> um, now, I wrote quite a lot about Heidegger, um, <laughs> and I've been trying to take the temperature on this in terms of how much people want to hear about it over the course of the weekend, and I'm not quite sure uh, how much we want to go, go into it. Um, he is quite quotable, I think. Uh, Tim to one side. Um, <clears throat> the artist is the origin of the work. The work is the origin of the artist. Seems quite straightforward and, uh, and clear. We can kind of wrap that one up. He's good at doing definitions. Origin means that from and by which something is what it is and as is as it is. So that's, that's sorted too. He, he covers all the ground quite quickly. Uh, <clears throat> go. but I think he writes a number of important essays after the well, before and after the war, kind of framing the war, the origin of the work of art in 1935 and the question concerning technology after the war in 1952. The arguments are complex. Um, I think the basic argument or insight, though, is that in the modern period, the work of art has become to be seen, by modern period he means the Enlightenment, really. The work of art is seen as an object produced by and expressive of individual subjectivity. Uh, That's both its strength and its weakness. Uh, Art, historically for him, grounds history by allowing truth to spring forth. When he talks about the temple at Paestum, that temple first gives to things their look and to humanity their outlook on themselves. Great works of art embody and reinforce a given community's sense of what is and what matters. They articulate and can even reconfigure the historical ontologies undergirding our cultural worlds. He thinks he's a historical view of ontology. Uh, Our experience of reality changes over time and artworks for Heidegger maintain and transform that sense of what is and what matters. Great art is an origin itself. It's a beginning. It's when a push, he says, enters history and history either uh, starts up or starts again really great art fundamentally transforms a historical community's understanding of being. Uh, Shakespeare on uh, consciousness, for example, which would be Bloom's argument would be maybe a Heideggerian view of the importance of the art. And he thinks the basic framework is of a subject-object relation. The work of art is viewed as an object for a subject. Uh, he argues in another work, a lecture, The Age of the World Picture, the artwork becomes an object of lived experience. We have a lively encounter with an artwork, so we need to step out of the sphere of our own subjectivity to encounter this external object and then come back into our subjectivity with the results of our enlivening experience. And so this becomes to count as an expression of human life. We see works of art as themselves expressions of the artistic subject's own life experience, the life experience of, of the artist. So in this approach, The aesthetic approach, art objects express and intensify human subjects' experiences of life. And, you know, he's he's sort of right, but but he thinks it's a problem. He thinks it's a a problem because we end up uh, splitting, split off from the art object. It's over there. And we have lost what he thought was the original Greek Homeric experience sort of a pre-cultural experience when we could have a more hands-on relationship uh, with artistic products, use them a bit more like hammers in the everyday and um, have a more pragmatic in-between relationship rather than this distancing uh, one where we judge, we see ourselves as this, uh, have this totalizing perspective, almost sort of godlike vision on the object which enables us to judge, is it good, is it bad? For Heidegger, it's a problem because we don't have totalizing perspective. We, we have a limited perspective as human beings, and things only come in division at the expense of other things coming, going out of focus. And He thinks we need to be aware of that all the time, that we, otherwise we end up being in a trap uh, that we've created for ourselves. Uh, and so in that sense, and I think somebody made this point at the end of uh, the discussion yesterday, um, which I thought was, was, was quite right, that Heidegger is sort of interestingly hostile to tradition. He's, sort of, he's irked at coming at the end of this process. It's like, why did all these other philosophers have to come first? You know, There's Plato, and there's Socrates, and there's Cicero, and all these people. They've done all this stuff. It's so annoying. Right? I want to just leap back all the way before them reject all of Western aesthetics, all of Western philosophy, uh, and get back to when things were just right uh, because we hadn't started thinking about them and we're just, we need to allow them to just be more. Uh, so he's sort of rejecting all of the past in favour of a, an original outlook in the literal sense. He's, he's irritated about having come last in being thrown into a world in which others have come uh, before him. Now, I mention this because it's that irritation, if you like, with what has come before that we can see um, very much exemplified, I think, and I'm going to leap forward to the contemporary debates now. We can see it very much exemplified in the kind of questioning, uncomfortable relationship we have with Western high culture to so classical music, um, we can see there's often a kind of a problem. Claire pointed out to me, and I was looking this up yesterday. The Guardian. I don't regularly read the Guardian, so I had to rely on her, her help. But um, they ran an editorial at the beginning of the month, uh, of this month, apropos of the start of the Proms, uh, in which they asked the question, "What is classical music for?" Now, the Guardian answered that it's got two purposes today. One is either as an instrument, haha uh-huh, to be used to drive the homeless away from the streets. You know, they sort of play them in uh, the doors of Burger King or in tube stations to get people to either go away, really irritate them and make them leave, or it can also sort of perverse, I guess if you choose the right music, you can also calm them down uh, so they won't start fights. So you'd pick, you know, Wagner or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever your, your cup of tea is, So that's one purpose, keep the homeless off the streets. Or two, classical music is for rich people. Uh, It's just a way of allowing them conspicuous consumption. It's a sort of way of preening uh, and status display. You can buy expensive tickets uh, for Covent Garden. And they're sort of arguing that Adorno's thesis, that it isn't a shame that there's serious music uh, has been commoditized. It's been taken over uh, by a sort of culture industry Uh, And the editorial argues that it's a shame that classical music has been reduced to this. But I think its real point is that it's asking, well, couldn't classical music be so much more than this? They argue classical music programming is missing a chance to expose audiences to the shock of the musically new. classical music, if it was doing what it should be doing, it would be exposing audiences to the shock of the musically new. Instead, classical music is guilty of continuing to hark back, rejecting innovation. The classical canon, The Guardian Regrets, is still mainly made up of the once revolutionary works of Beethoven and other dead white men. So classical music is being sort of put in the court of, uh, and found guilty of being classical music. The problem with it uh, is that it's not shockingly new, and if it could stop being classical music, it would be great. So what is required then, the logic goes, is for classical music to be revolutionary again, to be forward-looking and innovative. And this actually is Heidegger's argument. Uh, He thinks there's a possibility to blow this all up. Uh, with a a revolutionary new uh, work of art. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. He thinks the miracles required that only a God can save us now, but the same argument is being made uh, by the Guardian. Uh, It's also calling for composers of this shocking and new music, which I doubt we could really any longer call classical. It's calling for its composers to be neither dead, nor white, nor male, but to be women. And uh, the first night of the proms was uh, Friday night, and all the commentary I've read in it so far is in terms of the sexual politics of the conductor and the composer, both being uh, women of the opening work. That's really what's making the headlines about the proms this year. If you can't be um, neither dead nor white nor male, you can at least be Stormzy, of course. Uh, Two out of three ain't bad after all. Stormzy has been touted by the Charity Youth Music, as a much-needed replacement for Mozart in school music education. Why, you might ask? Because this charity done a four-year study in which the research shows, as the phrase goes, that children who get to listen to grime and hip-hop are less likely to be excluded from school for drug and alcohol use than those poor youths who are forced to listen to Figaro and the Jupiter Symphony or even the horrors of Eine kleine music. Now, you, you could say, well, this has got to be just right on the face of it. Fewer children are going to be excluded from education insofar as the schools stop trying to educate them. Uh, if, it becomes, if, if school just becomes like home or the street, uh, then you won't get excluded from it. Stormzy really is not education. Uh, and just two days ago, there's been a flare-up around this, again, this question of classical music. There's a guy called Wayne McGregor who a choreographer who released a compilation album, which was billed by his sort of advertising people as crossing the borders between electronic, ambient, classical, alternative, and modern music. So far, so dreadful, you might think, but surely right in tune with the values of the adversarial culture. It's all about fluidity as a value. It's all about crossing boundaries, being trans. That's what it's about. Sadly, though... McGregor immediately came under fire for, can you guess, for continuing to showcase the pale, male and stale. Only two of the works in the compilation have been composed by women. Composer Hannah Peel tweeted, biggest names in modern classical and electronic makes me feel a bit sick in 2019. And then listed female artists who were not on the record, including FKA twigs. Gazelle Twin, Poppy Aykroyd, Holly Herndon, and Mira Kellex. If you indulge me just for a minute, I had to look these up. Gazelle, Gazelle Twin um, is actually a Brighton band uh, whose aim is to defamiliarize de- the horrors of contemporary British society. Uh, re- reflecting on Brexit, poverty, and xenophobia, uh, they defamiliarize de- these things through absurdity. Uh, let me read quickly from a review in The Guardian naturally, of their album Pastoral. The poor are kicked into the curb like empty Coke cans. Shrill and fractured voices hector that it was much better in my day. The admirably nasty production, turning the thumbscrews on Chicago footwork, battering ram techno, operatic vocals, and sylvan folk means that not only is Bernholtz preaching to the converted, she's also preaching to an audience who pride themselves on their tolerance for enduring hostility. It might make for a more engaging performance than straightforward listening experience, although Bernholtz's Ingenuity does reveal itself. She meshes penny whistle squeals, traditional English song, and Punch and Judy shows into her aggressively latticed rhythms, creating a genuinely foreboding tension between Britain's past and present. By interweaving them, she refuses easy binaries between the benefits of either one. And she makes that the more arresting by suddenly dissolving harsh tones to liquid, yanking the notion of a green and pleasant land firmly out from beneath your feet. I mean, the, the idea that you need to be defamiliarized and made uncomfortable in your own home is a real trope of uh, a lot of uh, modern art. Mira Kellex um deserved a mention as well. She um she uses insects, uh, both live and recorded, to make music. Uh, she uses wasps like a string quartet. <laughs> I really am not making this up. She, she, she taped wasp song in an anechoic chamber at the Natural Museum of History in Geneva, an anechoic vault which has no echo in it, which allowed her to source the kind of sounds that human beings are not or normally able to pick up. She said she heard amazing things like ants walking or moths coming out of their pulps. This became a performance piece called Nunu in which she placed live cicadas and crickets in a fish tank on stage with cameras trained on them. Projections were broadcast to the audience on a giant screen. This actually caused some freakouts. one woman listening to the entire show with her eyes closed uh, in danger of being triggered. Uh, and there were people who were, who were concerned about uh, the possibility of insect cruelty. But Calix had actually hired a handler to make sure the wasps had a heating pad. <laughs> Uh, water and, and lettuce, <laughs> Ex- experiments in living. I mean, it's, it's, it's all good. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a diversion mainly, but the discussion about classical music is these exemplify ways in which they have to, it has to stop being classical. Um, you can decide whether or not that kind of thing is, is music. But the cultural war here is that the problem... Really seen that cultural music is uh, classical music seems old and white it has to be transgressed we need the new we need the cross boundary we need things that are not defined or limited or judged or standardized in any way whatsoever it's a real rejection of any kind of elitism uh, in the arts any kind of claim of cultural authority is immediately undercut because you 'll fail to be diverse enough and it's a kind of process, I've got the best compilation album of, you know, boundary-crossing music. No, you haven't, there aren't enough women on it, or there aren't enough da-da-da, and so it unravels. The only possible criterion uh, is relevance. It's uh, the only extent to which anything could be said to be good at all is the extent to which it's good for me, which is the argument of John Kerry, actually, in What Good Are the Arts, which is really a manifesto for cultural relativism in which he argues anything can be a work of art. He sort of let's celebrate the fact that traditional authority is gone. Uh, Anything could be a work of art. What makes it a work of art is just that someone thinks of it as a work of art. And that someone, he's very explicit, can be just one person and doesn't need to be a person who's arty in any way, knows anything about art. For Kerry, the art world has lost all credibility. It's exclusive, it's snobbish, and it's been justly destroyed by the end of deference and the advent of mass art. It's not a separate category of things anymore. Remember the points about Arendt at the beginning. It's not set away from the life process and looked after uh, and appreciated. It's all messed in. Um, There's nothing, uh, there's no separately existing category of works of art somehow more intrinsically valuable than things which are not called works of art, which is to make art all about me. Whereas I think it's not for us at all. Um, I think you should sort of look at it the other way around. You should you should say, how do we make ourselves uh, better for art, rather than asking, uh, what have you done for me lately, art? Um, now I'm going to sort of finish there because I've run out of time. Uh, but just with a couple of Closing thoughts that might start the discussion. Um, I'm arguing that there's this generational problem, if you like. There's the old stuff of the dead white men and their standards which are rejected in the names of sort of being about me and personal identity. Uh, Beauty is particularly uh, disliked in a lot of this discussion. Uh, I think because beauty is, again, going back to my definitional beginning, beauty is uh, something that shows us that we belong to our culture and that our culture belongs to us. Uh, It's about things fitting in and us fitting in to the cultural world we've created. Uh, It shows that things are rightly ordered. You could argue, if you were Roger Scruton, that beauty is the foundation of any durable social order. I'm not quite sure I go quite that far, but, you know, there's a point there about being able to feel that you're, you know, you're in the right place. Whereas a lot of contemporary art production is about, you know, making you realize that wherever you think you are, it's not a good place to be in and you shouldn't feel comfortable uh, at all. That we should be trying to demonstrate our estrangement, the extent to which we don't fit in. And that leads to a kind of valuing of the opposite side, valuing the unsettling, maybe not the ugly necessarily, but valuing the unsettling, the new and the shocking. The problem, you know, this rejection here is a rejection of popular judgment in favor of uh, expert judgment, if you like. It's a rejection of the accumulated wisdom of the past. Um, very quick list. Uh, there's a bad time of the year every year in the newspapers, which is when the Hay Festival happens and newspapers start reporting what people are saying at the Hay Festival. This year it was Move Over Dickens, Children Should Read Train Spotting. Uh, a list of a list has been drawn up of what children should be reading by children's literature experts, whatever that is. Um, the experts say that children should be reading Train Spotting, uh, uh, Chim- Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's We Should All Be Feminists, alongside Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and Everyday Sexism by Laura Bates. Um, there's a whole list, and there are some good things on it. I mean, there could be long stockings on now. Um That's the one I liked, actually. I'm less keen on We Are We Are All Displaced, My Journey and Stories from Refugee Girls Around the World, uh, edited by Nobel Prize winner Malala Yousafa. Um the, the thing about all these books, and some of them are probably very good, is that they're all sort of brand new. Right? Most of the authors are still alive. Um, I think you, you know, to get in the canon, you could at least be dead, but you know, then you become you know, something you can criticise properly. No, it's a serious point. I think Harold Bloom makes it. You can't really get into the Western canon until you've died. But in the contemporary imagination, of course, if you're dead, that's the problem. Uh, you're, you're bad. So what can we do uh, at the end of this? Two, I think points on this. One, you can't take up arbitrary positions in this debate. It doesn't make sense to say, right, I'm upset with WASPs uh, string quartets. I'm going to identify as traditional. I'm only going to listen to classical music. Um, I think that's nonsensical. It's equally nonsensical to do the other thing and and say, I'm going to be post-traditional. These are abstract uh, oppositions not based on any reality there's no transformative relationship between the traditional and the post-traditional there's just a rejection of the traditional going on for there to be a real relationship it would be you know between the traditional and the original you can be original within the concept of a tradition you innovate within the tradition but if you've rejected the tradition you can't be original you can be new uh, and you can be new and new and new and it all just ends up repeating itself all the modern art uh, contemporary exhibitions all seem to be about the same kind of thing there's nothing and it can be shocking and it can be disturbing and it can be unsettling and it can make you think uh, but I would argue uh, strictly speaking it's not original two uh, we have to and this is maybe my more conservative point I think we need to find out if there's a way of sort of re-sacralizing the world uh, looking at objects of art as worthy of special attention, uh, being looked after, uh, preserved and conserved in museums and taken seriously, um, some kind of humility in the face of, of beauty, acting as if art really matters uh, a lot. Daniel Bell argued that culture is a creation of men, the construction of a world to maintain continuity, to maintain our unanimal life. And we owe a duty to uphold this continuity uh, and to pass it on, to take ourselves seriously, both in our role as uh, receivers of an artistic tradition and our roles as originators within that tradition. Um, and that's maybe a sort of a religious attitude to life, to say, you know, these are serious matters that we can dedicate ourselves to. Um, it's a matter of maybe having natural piety uh, in the face of of beauty trying to see if we can read maybe in the in the odyssey or in great works of art or classical music um, ways in which we can celebrate the world we have created
0: don't forget to subscribe to this ideas matters podcast on your favorite feed and if you can we'd be grateful if you could leave a review which will help us get the word out about this series for anyone who wishes to explore any of the lecture topics in more depth then do check out the additional readings that are listed in the accompanying notes to the podcast or you can visit the academy at our website www.theboi.co.uk I'm Alistair Donald, Secretary of the Battle of Ideas Charity, which organises the Academy, as well as Debating matters, Schools Debating Championships and Living Freedom, the annual residential school for under-25s. If you would like to support this podcast, or any of the educational and citizenship initiatives, then please consider making a donation to the charity. More details of our work and how to support us are available at the website www.theboi.co.uk. Finally, thanks to Will Nestor Sherman who edited this podcast series.